Lord God, as we come to your word today, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would encourage us by what it is that you say, and that you will convict us of how we are to live in light of the gospel which has saved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we come to our passage today, it's important for us to remember where we've been. Paul has been laying down the foundation of salvation and spelling out how the old law brought about death. He said in Romans 1 that no one is righteous, not even one, and all have turned away. He explained and helped us understand that death and condemnation came through one man. He says in Romans 5, which we read before the school holidays, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so grace might also reign through righteousness to bring life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we explored what this looked like. And he poses the question for us, what does it mean for us to live as people who are saved? If God's grace reigns because of unrighteousness and becomes even more, should we keep on sinning? His answer is a resounding no. And at the end of this passage, Paul reminds us that we need to consider ourselves dead to sin. And so last week, we were looking at Romans 6, and he said, In the same ways, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, so that you will obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And Paul doesn't stop there and asks us to think even more about this in today's passage and what it looks like to live as people that are not under the law, but under grace. And we're going to read that now. So Romans chapter 6 from verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from the heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin, and you have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you were used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap from the time, uh, at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. 
So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore the fruit of death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul has taken us on a journey through Romans, from understanding how the law condemns us all through the glorious news that we have been saved by Jesus' death and resurrection. This glorious news gives us a great freedom, a great freedom to follow him, no longer being bound to death and sin. We are free from the burden of needing to keep the law because Jesus has kept the law perfectly for us, And this glorious freedom sets the stage for what we've been looking at last week and this week. Last week, Paul dealt with the first question. If God's grace is shown by our sin, should we keep on sinning so that God may show his grace even more? And we are reminded of the obvious answer, by no means. We've been saved from sin and we should not return back to doing it because doing so does not glorify God. And so today, we're looking at the next question in this series. If we've been saved from sin, then can we just simply do whatever we want? I mean, to some extent, the logic really flows. We've been saved and forgiven by God, and our sin is no more. We know that the forgiveness and the grace we have received is sufficient to cover all of our sin in the past, present, and future. We know that God has saved us from death. We know that he has delivered us from sin. And and so, given we are forgiven... Surely, what we do now doesn't matter. Surely, we can just go on and live our lives and it doesn't matter because we've been forgiven. But I mean, when we put it like this, the evident contradiction is more than apparent. We know implicitly that there is something wrong with this logic. We know that this way of thinking doesn't make sense. There is something in us that just speaks out and says, of course we can't do that. But I think we need to stop before we just discount this as the obvious thing. If you're a Christian, you've seen the Spirit at work in your life. You've been convicted of sin. You've been confronted with the need to change. You've probably been in a conversation with someone where you've been tempted to say something horrible about someone else. You've been, uh, the Spirit has nudged at your conscience to remind you that this isn't the right thing to do. And in that moment, you've been faced with a choice. Do you ignore the call of the Spirit on your heart? Or do you stop and change course and do the the thing that you know honours God? And if you're anything like me, by God's grace, you have often made the choice to do the right thing, to honour God with your actions and to live your life in a way that pleases him. But if you're anything like me, and I suspect that at least in this way many of you are, you've also found yourself in that situation. And instead of choosing to do the right thing, you felt the enormity of the decision you need to make. And it's easier to go along with the crowd, to join in that conversation and speak ill of someone else, to say that half-truth because you know it will be easier than backing out of the awkward situation that you find yourself in. And at that moment when you've made the choice to persist, to continue with the wrong course, even though that you know that it's wrong, even though you know that it's against what God is calling you to do in your heart, in that moment, you sin. And in that moment, you you may reconcile yourself with the balm. It's okay. I've been forgiven. 
There is nothing that God can't forgive me for, and so doing this wrong thing doesn't really matter. And so this is exactly the situation that Paul has written this part of Romans for. It's exactly those moments when you're facing the choice to do the right thing, but you are tempted to continue in sin. And friends, we are kidding ourselves if we think that we don't do it. I mean, it may not be a conversation. It may just be a simple lie, a stretch of the truth, a hurtful action, a decision to speed through a red light, a decision to have another drink when you know that you've had enough, a decision to watch a movie that you know doesn't glorify God, a moment where you yell at your children even though they don't deserve it. And I need to say at this point that I found it very difficult to write today's sermon. I found the weight of the words in this passage, uh, which truth to be told is part of my favourite bit of Romans, particularly challenging and powerful. I found it confronting as I've thought about my own life and my own sinful actions. And I pray that as we explore this today, you might also be challenged, and that even as we've set the context and the scene of where we are, God may have already nudged your heart. I also need to say that today's passage is speaking to people who have put their trust in Jesus and who have come to know the salvation that he has to offer. As he says at the end of chapter 6, Paul writes these words, uh, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And while we've looked at this before in Romans, it's important to remember that eternal life is a gift from God. It's not something we do. It's not something that comes from our obedience or our efforts in serving him. It's not something that comes because we are good enough. Eternal life is free and offered freely to all who trust Jesus to save them from death. Today's passage is dealing with what it looks like to trust him. And if you haven't done that yet, please understand that while we talk about what it looks like to live as a Christian, the only thing that Jesus asks of you is to trust in him. Many people still think of Christianity as a set of rules they need to follow. They look at passages like this one that talk about obedience and miss the context which the authors are writing in. The very heart of Christianity is reflected in that verse we just read. Because Jesus' death and resurrection deals completely with the problem of sin and death by forgiving us and freeing us. Jesus' death and resurrection does this entirely and I mean, this idea wasn't new in Romans. We looked at it in Romans 5. One of the things that Paul reminded us of, us, uh, reminded us of is that if we are in, and are, is that we are in and of ourselves powerless to do anything about our state. We were stuck in our sin, never being able to follow the law perfectly enough for God. But Jesus died and fulfilled the law. Jesus died and in his death was the sacrifice that God needed for our sin. Jesus came back to life and in doing so showing, showed that he has conquered death. And each of these things which bring about our salvation are done without us doing anything. And so I ask that you don't confuse what we're talking about in, with the context, uh, with the grace that God has shown for us by dying for us. In Romans 10, which we'll get to later this year, Paul says these words. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Being saved is about believing that Jesus was raised from the dead in your heart and acknowledging that he is Lord of your life. And if you do that, then you are saved. And so if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, I want to say that there is no better time than now. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, the Bible tells you that you are still dead and destined for death and hell. It tells us that Jesus freely offers you eternal life. 
If you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and the weight of history tells us that this is true, and if you are prepared to acknowledge him as the ruler of your life, then do it. There is no time like now to make that choice. There's no mystical ceremony or special ritual. There's no membership fee to pay or phrase to recite. Jesus has done all that is needed for you and offers you eternal life with him freely. So here's what we're going to do over the next 10 or so minutes. We're going to look at the nature of slavery and what it means to be a slave. We're going to look at what being a slave to righteousness is, how the law fits in, and we're going to go back and look at once again at why Paul is telling us all of these things. So let's go. Well, actually, before we do, let's jump into verse 19. In this verse, Paul says, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. He reminds us that the examples that he's giving here are limited from human life to help us understand and that these aren't perfect. It's worth remembering that as we start to pull this part of the Bible apart, the words that Paul is using are to help us understand an even greater picture of the relationship between us and God. They are descriptive of something much more complex and much deeper. And even though we'll only get ankle deep in understanding them today, ankle deep can often feel like we're up to our eyelids and a little bit further. So with this background, let's start by looking at slavery. I think we can often paint ourselves a rosy picture of what it's like to be a slave. We assume that it's like when our children ask them to help their put, their, put their shirt on again, even though they're six and perfectly capable of doing it themselves. We're tempted to blurt out something like, what did your last slave die of? Our 21st century Australian culture has isolated us from the truth of slavery that was part of our world for so long. Slaves were completely subject to their masters. They were bound to meet their masters every whim in every way. A good master might look after them, give them access to food, shelter, and treat their slaves quite well. And we have plenty of examples in ancient literature of slaves who were well looked after by their masters. But a bad master would beat their slaves. They would abuse them. They would starve them. They would make them do things that were dangerous so that it would likely result in their death. If a slave dared to do something that was contrary to their master's wishes, it would mean great suffering for them and often death. Slaves had no rights and no privileges in the society in which they lived. We've already been reminded by Paul that we've been freed from a kind of slavery, a kind of slavery that results in death, the slavery of the law. We've been freed by Jesus' death and resurrection and our new birth. While we were born into, the slavery, uh, into slavery to the law and sin, when we died with Christ and we were given our new spiritual birth as Christians, we were reborn as slaves to Christ and to righteousness. But Paul reminds us that you can tell who someone's master is by what they do. He reminds us that the actions of a slave show their true colours. Imagine, if you will, two powerful rulers. They are at war with one another. One master has a slave who is bound to serve him. Now a great war breaks out and the slave is captured by the other ruler and freed. But the freed slave looks back on his past and wants to be back in his old home. He contaminates the food supply. He drops poison in the water. Many people get sick and die. Now, it's pretty clear that even though the slave had been freed by his new master, he is still serving his original master because of his actions. And this is precisely what Paul's argument is here. Paul says that you can see our master by our actions. And if we, having been saved, still choose to do the things of our old master, then we are turning our back on our new master, Jesus Christ. Because even though we're free, we're always serving someone. Or a paraphrase of Paul's words, 
we are always a slave to someone. But what is this new slavery? What is this new way of life? I think this is perhaps one of the beautiful parts of this text. Look with me at verse 17. But thanks be to God that even though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has claimed your allegiance. Though we used to be slaves to sin, this is now our past. We were once that way, but we are not now. But what has changed? Well, here is the difference. You have come to obey from your heart. What's new is an obedience that stems from our very soul, an obedience that isn't a begrudging servitude of a set of commands, but an obedience that stems from a genuine desire to, plead our, to please our new master. And obedience to what? Well, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed our allegiance. You see, our obedience is not to some wild set of ideas or to a new set of laws and commands. Rather, it is to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same teaching that matches with the law, the law that he fulfilled. Teaching that tells us we are to be holy just as our Father in heaven is holy. Teaching that tells us that, to ser- that we are to serve, our Lord the, uh, to, to serve the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbour as ourselves. Teaching that tells us if we curse someone, we have effectively murdered them. Teaching that, te- that is so radically self-sacrificial and so wholeheartedly serving that the words, God has claimed your allegiance, are almost too soft for it. You see, friends, this isn't some half-hearted optional gig. This isn't a sign up for the salvation bit and go on living your life however you want. This is whole heart, whole life in kind of deal. Jesus wants, no demands, all of us. But how is this different from the law? Why is this new allegiance not just a slavery like the old pattern of slavery? The famous author C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity writes, Now there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I was only going to live 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I am going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the ever-increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely correct, the correct technical term for what it would be. You see, that's the old master that we served, the old master that bound us to death. But the new master that we serve is not like this. Instead of being slave to the things that bring about death and destruction, that result in our character getting worse, we are instead slaves to righteousness, slaves to something that brings about our freedom. Slavery is probably a bad word here, but the point is that you can only be a slave to one thing at a time. You can't continue to be a slave to the sinful nature and to be a slave to righteousness. And so when we're presented with the question we started with, namely, can we just go on sinning because we've already been forgiven? The answer is a resounding no. Because being forgiven is about a change in the heart, a change in obedience, an obedience that causes us to now follow the one who is our righteous and right ruler, judge and king. And in following him and in doing what he commands, there is no room for us to left for us to keep living in the pattern of what we once did. And Paul doesn't stop there. He points out that when we were slaves to sin, every part of our body was offered to sin. If you wanted to lie with your tongue, no worries, because your master was one that didn't care if you did. If you wanted to sleep with someone that wasn't your wife, no worries, because your master was one that didn't care if you did. If you wanted to start on a course of lying and deception, 
and needed to keep digging and deeper and deeper. Your master didn't care and even encouraged you to do that. But where do all of these things end? Nowhere good. They end in death and in loneliness and in pain and in hurt. But now that we're saved, what do we do? Well, we offer every part of our body, every part of our being, our minds, our hands, our tongue, our bodies, even our sexuality to God, and we use it for him. And what is the fruit of this? Well, exactly the opposite of what we had before. Instead of pain and suffering and death, it is the fruit of righteousness, of good, of freedom. And moreover, the result is something beyond the here and now. Even more than those things, the result is eternal life. And that's a contrast worth reflecting on. Being a slave to sin, as C.S. Lewis rightly wrote, is about an ever-increasing level of death that in the scope of 70 years or so may or may not be noticeable, but over eternity is absolute hell. But being a slave to righteousness, a slave to Jesus Christ, well, instead of death and hell, it's life. It's life everlasting, life that is good, life that is selfless, not selfish, life that cares for those around us, life that forgives, Life that cares about our deepest, most intimate desires. Life that gives us identity and hope and peace. Life that fills us with joy. Life that says that we're important and worth something. Life that is free from sickness, from sadness and pain. Life that is free from lies and deception. Life that is perfect with our Lord and Saviour. It's good and it's wonderful. But you might say, the benefits sound great. But isn't this obedience just another form of slavery? Aren't we free? Well, I think that's exactly why Paul uses his next illustration. We are free. We're free to live the life the way that God intended us to. But with that freedom, which is a given and enabled by God, comes the responsibility to live in the way that God intended us to live. Remember that Paul is writing to Jewish Christians living throughout the Roman Empire. Empire, and he reminds them of what the law says about marriage. He reminds them that once someone is married, they are bound to that marriage until death. And that's still in our marriage vows today. Till death do us part. While you are in the marriage relationship, you are bound to the person you are married to until death. But if death happens, you are freed from that marriage contract and free to enter into a new marriage contract. In the same way, we are married to sin. But when Christ died and we, know, uh, and we died to sin, we entered a new marriage relationship. Instead of our souls being wedded to sin and death, our souls were wedded to Christ Jesus and eternal life. And the illustration goes on from there. When you are in a marriage, you seek to serve the good of your partner. You willingly do things for them and you seek their good. Your life changes around their wants and their desires for you. As you willingly submit to one another, you grow more and more in love with them. And when your marriage partner asks you to do something, like do the dishes or take the garbage out, you don't do it out of a sense of responsibility. You do it out of a desire to please them and to do what they want. And this is why I don't use a computer when I'm preaching. Ta 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 ta. There we go. To do what he wants and to serve... Uh, and sure, our marriages aren't perfect. We still do the wrong thing. We struggle with selfishness and the effects of sin in our lives. And so this illustration isn't perfect, but we can still see the truth of it in our own lives. 
So this, uh, in the same way, our marriage to Jesus, the church, the, the church of God is his bride, and we as part of his church drives us to live, to please him, to do what he wants, and to serve him in any way we can. And we do that because we know he has our good at heart, and he loves us and serves us. But God didn't leave us to do this alone. He gave us his spirit, which lives inside of us, that cleanses and changes our conscience so that we can do the right thing and obey him. He gives us the will and the motivation that causes us and to take each step we do in his service. And he gives us the strength to do it. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in 7 verse 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is what the new way of the Spirit is all about. And over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack more and more of that. But it's worth remembering that this is why Paul says in 6 verse 17, which we read before, but thanks be to God. Because it's by his strength and by his energy and his grace that we now live in this life of obedience. It's not because of our own self, but entirely because of him and the Spirit which lives in us. So where to from here? Well, we've looked at what the slavery is like and what it's like to be a slave of sin and death. We've looked at what it's like to be a new slave to righteousness. And we've talked about how we can't serve two masters, but that living for Jesus is a life of one of obedience. Well, I think that there are two things left to do. We need to look at our hearts and think about what this means for us. In so many of our areas of our lives, we continue to live as though sin is our master. We would be horrified if we said aloud that we would keep on sinning because we've been forgiven. And yet every day, we still live that way. I'm sure that there are areas of your life that have uh, been touched in your mind as I've been talking today, and that you've been challenged. Things that you know you need to do, or places where you tend to go that you know you make wrong choices. And it's in those areas where we need to realise we have a new master. We have a new master that calls us to obedience. We have a new master that wants us to serve and to please him. We have a new master that says, I have died so that you no longer live as someone whose master and whose destiny is death. Your new home is eternal life. And we have a new master who has given us his spirit and a new heart that can serve him. And I'm going to give you a moment now to reflect once more on the areas of your life that the spirit is prompting you to change. And so when you next face the choice to pick your master, do so with your eyes open. You do not have to sin. You do not have to be disobedient. Jesus has freed you so you can serve him. You are free to stop your pattern of sin and to instead live God's way. And at this point, I want to stop and remind you that if it's okay if you get it wrong, it's okay if you don't do the right thing because we are forgiven by Jesus, because we know that's true. But here's the thing, to end on that note would be to simply cop out of this passage. Because yes, it's true that all our sin is forgiven. Yes, it's true that even though we continue to sin, Jesus' death is sufficient and effective to cover all of us. It is true that we have to do nothing to be saved. But this passage reminds us that we can't use it as an excuse for our behaviour. We can't use the fact that we've been forgiven and shown grace as a justification to continue to sin. Sin is not okay because it is no longer our master. And here's the thing. Paul isn't saying that if we sin, we are not going to be saved. In fact, his entire language is anything but that. Rather, he is saying that we should not sin because we have been saved. We should not follow our old master because we have a new master. We are not slaves to sin anymore. 
we are now slaves to righteousness and to obedience and to Jesus. And with that background in mind, I think it helps us even more as we seek to serve Jesus in our actions in our everyday lives. We have a new master, a new master who has saved us, a new master who knew that the wages that would be paid to us because of our sin were death, but instead took that wage of death upon himself and gave us eternal life, life, literally. And so I'm going to end with the words from chapter 6. These words are such a clear picture of the Christian life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to Jesus, our Lord. And I did say that we were going to do two things. And the second thing that we need to do is to thank God and to pray. To thank God for what he has done for us in Jesus. To thank God for the grace that he has shown us that deals with our sin, that offers us forgiveness. To thank God that even though we keep running back to our sinful lives and choosing to serve our sinful master rather than Jesus, he has forgiven us and that he has given us our spirit so that we can choose to live rightly for him. So let's do that now. Our Lord God, we thank you for the salvation that you offer us in Jesus. We thank you that his death means that we are saved. We thank you that he has given us eternal life and that we have died to sin so that we can live righteously for you. Lord God, thank you that we are no longer bound to serve our old master, the master that leads us to death, but we can now instead live for a new master, a master that changes our hearts so that we can be obedient to you. Lord God, thank you for your law which reminds us of how to live. And thank you that you confront us by your spirit with the parts of our lives and our minds where we need to change. Lord God, please help us to keep coming to you in repentance and forgiveness. Lord God, not just repentance that says, I'm sorry, and then continues to live the way that we were, but repentance which brings about a change in our hearts and our minds that encourages us to step out every day and to serve you with all of our heart and all of our soul. Lord God, please help us to be obedient to you, to your commands and your law, law which teaches us to love one another, law which teaches us to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And Lord God, please help us to do that because your spirit lives within us and changes us. Lord God, when we're confronted with the desire to sin, where we're confronted with the choice to make decisions that we know are contrary to what you have commanded us, that we know that are contrary to the righteousness which you have brought us into, that we know are contrary to the law and the life that you would have us live. Lord God, please prompt us by your spirit to make the choice to serve you. Please help us to repent of our evil and wicked ways and to live every day serving and following you. Lord God, thank you that you have forgiven us. Thank you that death no longer binds us, but eternal life is now our home. And Lord God, please help us to live as people that know that. Please help us to live every day of our lives, serving you, knowing that our home is in heaven, not on this earth, and most certainly not in hell. Lord Jesus, we thank you for everything that you've done. Amen.